0: It's Wednesday, April 7th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. With me today, the Chief Investment Officer, Andy Cross. Thanks for being here.
1: Hey, thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure to be back on Market Foolery.
0: We have fintech news. We're going to talk about the last stocks that you and I purchased. But we're going to start today with a letter from Mr. Diamond. JP Morgan Chase, Chairman and CEO, Jamie Diamond, is out with his annual letter to shareholders. There are a lot of things uh, in the letter. It is a, it is a very long letter, yeah, but extensive. the headline, I, I think it's fair to say, Andy, that the headline is, Jamie Dimon is very bullish on the U.S. economy for the next few years. Uh, you know, He went so far as to basically spell out, uh, I, and I'm quoting here, I have little doubt that with excess savings, new stimul- stimulus savings, huge deficit spending, more QE, a new potential infrastructure bill, a successful vaccine and euphoria around the end of the pandemic, the U.S. economy will likely boom. This boom could easily run into 2023 because all the spending could extend well into 2023.
1: Yeah, I think that was a little bit different theme than he was talking last year where he was much more pessimistic, talking about the impact of of the Covid pandemic, the quarantines, the lockdowns on the economy, and what that may mean, obviously for his his bank. Um, and since then, it's been it's been um, uh, really uh, bullish, take and a switch for for Jamie Dimon, one of the more respected, if not the most respected, banking CEOs out there. There's, of course, there's a lot of them, and he runs the the largest bank out there. Four hundred and seventy billion dollars worth for 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 J P Morgan, um, and his letter is always a always a really interesting read. Um, you may, it is extensive. I mean, it goes on and on and on. So, so Mr. Diamond, not one for um, for brevity here. Uh, so he is trying to pack a lot in here, but I think that is one of the themes, Chris. When you look through what he has written, is that looking at the massive amounts of stimulus coming, the efficiencies of, of businesses, the investments they're making in his own business, what they are seeing at the consumer side. He talks a lot about the shareholder and the and the consumer and the, the, the bank's influence across the globe, but really at the consumer level. Um, throughout his letter, he mentions that, and I think he sees all of those factors. The employment number is better than than probably expected, and just from a, he, you know, talk about high-frequency data that they have at their hands, if they're tapping into it, which I imagine they are, and they are hiring a lot of 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 different people, different roles, including technology. That's going to play into what he is seeing in the markets, and he is seeing some very very positive and good news, and and that's reflected in this this more optimistic tone of the markets um, this year versus last year.
0: It is helpful because there are a lot of people out there. I know I'm getting this question, uh, and I'm seeing it pop up uh, in the financial news. I'm not saying it's illegitimate. It's perfectly le- legitimate to ask the question of, "Well, wait, what is the state of the economy with all of the stimulus spending? With uh, you know people looking at the the deficit that uh, is being run up in the United States?" So it, it is helpful to have diamond to come out and say this because you know to your point when you think about annual letters and you know every company puts out an annual letter but Jamie Diamond's on the short list of I would argue the most important letters um, I would put Jeff Bezos on that list I'd put Warren Buffett on that list you could throw Larry Fink from BlackRock in there as well and yeah. I'm, I'm you know there's there's you know people will argue for others but For Diamond, someone of his stature and experience to come out and say, this is what I'm seeing, and this is how I think things are going to go over the next couple of years, that absolutely helps.
1: Yeah, I think so, Chris. I mean, there there are a lot of great letters, and more and more CEOs are writing and spending a lot of time through these letters. I don't know how long it took Jamie to write this and his team to write this, um, but there are there are lots of lots of great letters. I mean, the the the, the Pinterest letter, the Alassian letter. Uh, I just think that there's some great technology letters out there that really talk about their business and their mark and that what they are seeing in their markets. Jamie Diamond, because the bank is so large. It's because it, it touches on so many different parts of the environment and the way that the bank and the financial markets have been shifting and changing over the last two, three years and really over the last, um, last year, uh, I think it warrants some attention to hear what he is saying and what his team is, is, is seeing. And how that gets reflected and communicated to shareholders. It starts off as a letter really for shareholders. It talks very talks, it talks directly to shareholders, right? So and then it kind of gets and consumers too, but then it kind of gets into the more of the details. And he talks about the COVID and he has it all broken down into different sections. And section five is COVID-19 and the economy. He talks about bold action by the Fed and the U.S. government effectively reversing the financial panic. Banks entering the crisis in much better shape and then were part of the solution coming out and what they have done in the banking industry and its investments it's made. Throughout all the different uh, ventures that has been tied to the federal government, helping support consumers around the around the U.S., and that's a much different spot than what they would have been in two thousand seven, two thousand eight, going into the two thousand nine. Uh, I'm sorry, going into the two thousand eight uh, financial crisis that bled into two thousand nine. And so he, he just kind of lays these out the confuse the the confusing interplay of monetary, fiscal, and regulatory policy continues throughout recession so he just lays out these these thoughts and principles and how that impacts JP Morgan's business and it's very insightful and gives a, a very um, broad look at what someone like JP Morgan and some companies that their size with their reach are thinking about and how they're impacted by the the, the the environment today versus where it was maybe a year and three four five ten years ago.
0: One of the other things he said with respect to the banking sector is how um, the banking industry should be scared of fintech, which leads us to our next story. Big news from Plaid, the fintech company announced it has raised $425 million in its latest round of financing. This puts Plaid's valuation at $13.4 billion. And Keep in mind, it was back in January of 2020 that Visa agreed to buy Plaid for 5.3 billion. The deal was called off earlier this year due to regulatory concern. This is—I I know there are a lot of people bullish on Plaid. This is an astonishing rise in valuation in a relatively short amount of time.
1: It's—it's a, it's a, quite an incredible story, Chris. So you think about Plaid and Visa, and they had the platitudes out there in the press releases. In January of 2020, so really before the pandemic really started to hit, and they had agreed to this to an acquisition of Visa acquiring Plaid for a little more than five billion, around there, Um, and what that meant for fintech and what that meant for Visa and 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 the like, and then in. Uh, throughout the summer and in the, in the fall, the, um, the Department of Justice and other regulatory bodies started, started talking about how, how they, are, they are investigating this, looking into it, and worries about the anti-competitive behavior that Visa might be undertaking to basically take out a potential very powerful, growing, emerging competitive threat in Plaid. And so, considering all of that was going on in January of this year, they pulled the plug, as you mentioned. So just that, just that quick little recap. And what's fascinating to me is, as you mentioned, during that time, Plaid has had an enormous growth in their business, and they talked about this, um, and talk about how their business has really evolved and changed over, as many fintech companies have, and how it's been revolutionary. And there's also stories and um, uh, articles and reports from from Plaid. F- Former employees and what they are seeing in the business, and talking about, about perhaps um, uh, fundraising and uh, in, in increasing their rounds and what it meant for the valuation as early as um, a, a, a January or February of this year before this news actually broke. So, and that number was somewhere even north of 13 and a half 14, 15 billion. So, you start to see, like, wow, this has really changed. And then Plaid's like, hey, This is now a chance for us to be able to go out there, raise some capital, and boost our valuation. And as you mentioned, it's a two and a half times increase of the value, or two and a half times what the valuation was in January. And it gets to the fact that Plaid's had this user base that's grown more than 60%. They now um, have a very, very deeper reach as they grow their customers base, their customer pain. they now serve more than 11,000 different financial institutions, connect all of these financial institutions and. Consumers to make the integration of finance and the transfer of money and the sharing of data much more seamless, much easier. And that solves a real problem in finance. And Plaid has long talked about how they they are trying to essentially democratize the financial transaction landscape around the world. And Visa saw this, obviously. And then it it backed off for the reason we just talked about. And now here you have a company that's had a real healthy 2020. And now it's showing up in the valuation, and pretty impressive um, valuation growth in the, for for Plaid and its shareholders.
0: This has to end with Plaid going public at some point, right? I mean, there were people a year ago, January, who thought Visa was paying up at 5.3 <laughs> billion to buy Plaid. They thought, you know, there were people like, well, yeah. it, it, it's a good acquisition, but boy, they're really paying for. It. Nobody's going to pay. I mean, it would take. Twenty billion to buy them now, at least. So, th- th- whether it's later this year or sometime in twenty twenty two or beyond, doesn't this end with Plaid going public?
1: Well, Zach Parrott said that the CEO said that um, they, it's it's kind of on their mind. They don't have any immediate plans. That kind of platitudes, right? Talked about, and, and you see that a lot from different CEOs when they're in this this kind of spot. And I think they're in a very strong competitive position and growing their their business quite well. I think. The um, reports of them having about 100 million in revenue back bef- when they had that valuation, and assuming that like their customer count grew by 60% in 2020, the revenue is probably far higher. So, you know, even give them at a you know 200 400 million dollars in revenue more or less, like really juice that up by 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 um, compared to the 100 million dollars in revenue, and you start to see a company that's valued at more than 30 times sales. So you have these valuations that from, a, from a, um, a metric perspective, a price-to-sales perspective that we've seen over the last um, year or so really start to expand, and Plaid's benefiting from that clearly. Now, would someone want to come in? I just think the problem with Plaid is they are so integrated in so many different financial institutions and have such a wide reach, and they are growing that influence. That it's going to be very hard for, from a regulatory perspective, for someone to come in and buy them who's tied to the to the to the, to the financial landscape. It would almost have to be another tech company. And even then, then we know tech companies have someone who's going to splash out this kind of money. To um, to to buy uh, Plaid would have to um, would face their own sc- regulatory scrutiny probably. So yes, it probably leads down the road. I would think um, maybe in the next year or so of them of them going public and, and satisfying these initial shareholders who now are, like you said are are raising for, or spending more than four hundred million dollars to invest into Plaid and they're going to want to return on that that money. I imagine fairly quickly too.
0: We got a lot of great questions that have been coming in lately from listeners, and we'll get to those in a second. I just wanted to throw out two quick podcast episode recommendations. The first is a show called Smartless, which doesn't need me to promote it. It's one of the most popular podcasts out there. This is a a weekly show with Jason Bateman, Will Arnett, and Sean Hayes. And the setup of the show is, they're friends, and the, the setup of the show is that one of them brings on a guest for the three of them to talk to, but the other two don't know who it is. And the most recent episode of Smartless, uh, the ge- and usually it's someone, it's an actor or comedian or that sort of thing. The most recent guest is Ted Sarandos, the co-CEO of Netflix, and I cannot recommend this episode. Who brought enough. him
1: on? Who brought him on, Chris? Do
0: you uh, Jason one? Bateman brought him. Jason on. Jason Bateman, yeah, uh, and because he's got the Ozark show, although they talk about Arrested Development, and it 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 was as someone who admires the company and um, doesn't know a lot about Ted Sarandos, I I I find it fascinating, and it's one of those things. Like if you're a Netflix shareholder, you're you're going to want to listen to this because it's it's great stuff. Uh, The other episode, I will just throw out there, uh, the Tech Money podcast with Malcolm Etheridge. Um, Malcolm is. Certified financial planner in Washington, D.C. We actually had him on Market Foolery about five years ago or so. Um, really smart guy, very thoughtful, very foolish. Um, and he invited me to come on his show. And so uh, we talked for about 35 minutes about the Motley Fool, about retail investing, the mindset, uh, sort of the origin story for Fool podcast. So um, I, I had a great time talking with him. So uh, if anyone's interested in that, you can check out the Tech Money podcast. With that, let's get to the email, Marketfoolery at fool.com is our email address. First up from Aaron Burton, he writes, my investment strategy has been focused on finding attractive growth stocks mainly in technology, but interest rates have been rising. I'm starting to think that as the economy exits the pandemic, higher inflation, higher taxes, and higher interest rates may be on the horizon. What is your advice for investing under these types of conditions? Are value stocks a good option?
1: Well, certainly not alone. We've seen that certainly over the last um, two months, as people start to do that, um, what's called the rotation trade, and start to—I say people, I mean—it's it's mostly large institutions, um, and then and then uh, uh, momentum traders that are getting into that mix, depending on how those flows are going. So you're starting to see that um, as interest rates are starting to shift and change, and maybe people think, investors think the that, um, that this more cyclical stocks will have a better chance coming out of this recession. And boy, oh, by, by the way, tech stocks, large com- large uh, growth tech stocks, and well, even small growth tech stocks have done so well in 2020 and, and throughout the um, rebounding from the, the, the pandemic. So thinking, wow, the that market has played out. Now I'm making the shift. So he's so certainly not alone, and there are people thinking about that. I think you have to be a little bit careful because those cyclical companies tend to just not necessarily. and I'm talking like energy companies, um, maybe even some financial companies, industrial companies, manufacturers. They just might not have the long tail tailwinds that so many great growth tech companies have because the world is becoming more and more integrated, more and more technology savvy, and all companies are, are, are now focused on technology so so I can certainly understand that kind of thinking there's no harm in that and rebalancing your portfolio or just starting to think I may be a little bit too concentrated in this one area and that's never a super healthy thing so you want some diversification so that's fine to do that I would just be careful about going all in or all out of certain sectors or certain stocks because if you are investing for the next three five ten years you will still want to have exposure to the high Higher growth parts of the market, and that tends to be consumer-facing technology and technology companies in general, not exclusively, but definitely don't abandon that strategy.
0: Well, and you, you, at the end of the day, you want it to be a good business. You know, I mean, because there are absolutely people who go value hunting, and it's it's just numbers based. And it doesn't matter what the underlying business is. And to me, it's like, no, I think I think you really want to focus on find a good business and then look at it and say, well, if you're going to sell me this good business at that price, yeah, I'm in
1: yeah there's a difference between going um shopping for a company like disney when it was getting hit over the concerns of the pandemic influence their cruise business going to movies all this even really before they launched disney plus and we've seen the massive success of that but um and and financials being hit and some other of those and then going that that have really strong businesses and then going very cyclical Dumpster diving stocks are down eighty percent or seventy percent or fifty percent. Now they're rebounding a little bit, so they so so that there is a difference of that, Chris. And that's a very good point. And we love the shopping and buying and owning those great businesses. So really focusing on the business quality. And some, I mean, J.P. Morgan's one example, right? It's a large company, from a from an earnings multiple perspective, sells it far cheaper than than um, well not far cheaper, but cheaper than the the S and P 500. Um, it's not gonna. Double overnight, and it's not going to be a huge growth driver, but it's a very steady, um, probably low-volatile um, company to own. and And some people may want to shift into that a little bit into that to be able to balance out some of their um, some of their growth um, exposure in their portfolios.
0: Finally, from Jennifer in Florida, who writes, "What is the last stock you bought, and why did you buy it?" I like that question.
1: Yeah, so I love that question too, Jennifer. I'm I, I'm still under some restrictions from the Motley Fool, so I can't talk about the exact last stock I bought, but I will tell you about one that I've bought in the past week or so, and that's Redfin. Speaking about a company that was hit pretty dramatically hard during 2020, um, and the, the 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 real estate, the innovative real estate um, home buying and um, a realtor in the United States, seven billion dollar market cap now. At one point, I think it was 10 or 11, so it's dropped um, over the last couple months um, with with some. Some of the, the changing in the market dynamics after rebounding from its lows last last, um, last spring. Uh, so I just like the spot that they are playing in. I like how they run their business. Um, Glenn Kelman founded the business. The CEO is, I think, very astute and has really great vision for the real estate markets. Obviously, a very competitive business, but it's also very fragmented, Chris. And they charge a far lower commission um, using technology to their advantage, expanding their reach, growing into um, a, what is a large and growing and now very um, challenged market because there's just not enough supply of houses. We have a lot of interest in buying houses. Um, they are investing heavily into the real estate agents; those agents tied to the Redfin, the Redfin network. So that's that's perhaps maybe going to hurt a little bit of the profitability as they as they may have they implied and talked about in the recent call. But that's hit the stock price in the near term. But again, looking out over the next three to five years, I see Redfin as, as a larger company. I think the stock will do well, and so that's one that I recently bought.
0: Uh, I will just add. Uh... Most recent stocks I bought, I, I looked at my portfolio and realized I don't really have enough growth in here. I would like to have some more exposure to growth stocks, so bought some companies that I am very bullish on over the next ten years, which is a good thing because from the time that I bought them till today, they're all down, and it includes <laughs> it includes companies like you know DocuSign and yep. Match Group and Octa, you know. Sh- sh- Stocks we've talked a lot about, um, and again, it's it's not great to look down and, and, and see the red, but uh, you know I'm very confident that ten years from now I'm I'm glad. I will be glad that I bought them, even with the the short-term pain. Well,
1: yeah, and I don't mean to laugh to be dismissive, certainly, because no, I think no. we make we make you know we make kind of jokes when we oh gosh now I bought Redfin, um, that's almost a guarantee in the next three months is going to go down. You right. know, we make jokes kind of among our team that are timing, because we're not we, we don't try to time our purchases necessarily. We just see value. We make the we we, we see where we think the long-term value is, and the prices maybe attractive one way or the other, and maybe that's because the stock is going up or down. But we make kind of the internal joke. So again, I don't mean to be dismissive because I know there are a lot of newer investors into the market over the last, who who maybe over the last three months or so have bought some high tech stocks and they're seeing that that red in there on those purchases. As am I. I've done the same thing. Um, But again, like you said, looking at the long term prospects and the leadership teams, the markets they're serving, the solutions they're creating. You think about a business like Plaid that is really trying to solve a very difficult and trying problem for so many of us, which is integrating our financial accounts, the back end part to that and all that technology and how that works and the security, loads and loads of very serious challenges that are trying to solve that very complex problem a lot of the companies that we are looking at and that we invest in and recommend are trying to solve those very complex and very um, uh, consumer-facing problems that we want to have solutions for, and they're trying to do it. And Those are the kinds of businesses ultimately over the next five, 10 years you want to be owning because they're the ones that are going to drive the highest revenue growth and the best profit picture probably long-term.
0: Andy Cross, always great talking to you. Thanks for being here.
1: Yeah, thanks, Chris.
0: As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market read. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.